Strange Studies of Strange Stories. All day long he rested, while the guns thundered in the village below. Then, in the slanting shadows of the late afternoon, the rumbling echoes faded into the distance, and he knew it was over. The American advance had crossed the river. They were gone at last, and it was safe once more. Above the village, in the crumbling ruins of the great chateau atop the wooded hillside, Count Barsack emerged from the crypt. The Count was tall and thin, cadaverously thin, in a manner most hideously appropriate. His face and hands had a waxen pallor. His hair was dark, but not as dark as his eyes and the hollows beneath them. His cloak was black, and the sole touch of colour about his person was the vivid redness of his lips when they curled in a smile. He was smiling now in the twilight, for it was time to play the game. The name of the game was Death, and the Count had played it many times. We got a count? Is it Dracula? Is this March? <laughs> Listen, last week we did a Povember in October. This is a story by Robert Block, so we're doing a Blocktober in November. <gasps> you think we won't upsize to a Marches for Draculas? Oh my God. You just wait and see. I will. <laughs> I, of course, am Chris Lackey, and this story is The Living Dead by Robert Block. I am Chad Pfeiffer, and thank you for joining us on Strange Studies of Strange Stories. This is our free show for November. Please consider subscribing on Patreon. You can even do it through Spotify by searching Witch House Media. We cover all the best in classic genre fiction with six shows a month. As one of our listeners once wrote, we are good uh, parasocial homies. And we've got a Discord now. So you can get on there and meet all the cool people in the community. They call themselves Stranglers. Well, one of them does anyway. Who was that reader? Our reader is Paul Fricker. He's the other half of Mason and Fricker's Eldritch Stories. Whenever I hear Paul's name, I feel like it belongs in a 70s crime film. We got a problem. It's Paul Fricker. He's back. <laughs> Their podcast features readings of short tales of the weird and wondrous, as well as bonus episodes with Paul and Mike Mason offering insights. You know, Mike Mason sounds like he'd be in a 70s crime film, too. Yep. It's 98 degrees out here. Now you tell me Mike Mason's on the loose again. <laughs> <laughs> Paul is also on the Call of Cthulhu podcast, The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. We'll link out to both of those on the show notes. This month, we'll be covering a melange of stories, a gumbo, a hodgepodge, and we'll be asking ourselves, are these indeed strange stories or not? Mm. But we wanted to start the month light with this very goofy, but also a little angry, Robert Block story about a Nazi vampire actor. <laughs> we've covered Block only once on the new show. That was Sweets for the Sweet. Mm. But we've covered him a ton on the old show, so much so that he had his own month. Blocktober, yes. Block was pals with Lovecraft when he was a teenager, so that's why he popped up so much. He was even the basis for the main character in the story, Haunter of the Dark. By the way, the reading we produced of that story, starring Andrew Lehman, mm -hmm. is still far and away our most viewed video on YouTube. Oh, wow. People still listen to it. We released it 13 spooky years ago. It's still going strong. Wow. Just like the work of Robert Block. Quick bio. Robert Block was born in Chicago in 1917 wrote for the pulps and contributed to a lot of Lovecraft's mythos, wrote a lot of TV, including Star Trek, the original series. Yes. But he's probably best known for writing the novel Psycho. He died in 1994. 
This story was first published in 1967 in the April edition of Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. You found it in the good old Penguin Book of Vampire Stories, I believe. Uh, actually, well, you would think I would have read it in that beloved tome of mine, but I must have skipped it because I actually found this last week in another anthology I just picked up at a bookstore. It's called Great Tales of Madness and the Macabre, which is a very good title. Yeah. But the design of the book cover looked like Windows 95. <laughs> I'll find the cover and link out and you'll see what I mean. But I'm betting it's that crappy book design that caused it to be marked down for five bucks, which resulted in me grabbing it. Nice. The book was published in 1990, so I guess a lot of things looked that way at the time. Sure. And the stories were compiled by Charles R. Dye, who, like Robert Block, was a teenage pulp story fan. He would have been around 21 in, in 1990 when he put this book together. Also around this time, R. Dye worked for a hedge fund in which he and co-employee Jeff Bezos were tasked with creating online business concepts. What? Bezos founded Amazon, and Ardai founded Juno, which early internet folks will remember. I think wow. Juno's still a business that connects internet to folks. But he sold that in 2001 and then went on to found a Hard Case Crime, well, a publishing company Whoa. that does Pulp Fiction. I've read, I have some of their books. So he moved out of tech and back into the Pulp Fiction business, which I just think is a really interesting trajectory. Anyway, he was the editor of this anthology, which I read a ton of the stories in. Most were pretty good, but essentially revenge stories with some weird twist, uh. which this kind of is as well. We were discussing revenge tales a bit on our extra credit episode last month, uh -huh. talking about the film Mandy. It comes up again in this one. So let's talk about that topic a bit at the end. I've gone on too long. Let's just get into the story, The Living Dead. Our story begins during World War II in a small village with a vampire, Count Barsack, coming out of his crypt to wreak death and madness upon the unsuspecting people. The name of the game was Death, and the Count had played it many times. <laughs> this is almost too dramatic even for Block, yeah. suggesting that he's not totally serious. Uh -huh. And this vampire had to wait for the American advance to pass, which are both clues that this isn't your garden variety Dracula. This vampire is not actually a vampire. He's a German soldier. <gasps> That's even worse. And an actor. That's the worst of all. <laughs> not just any old actor German soldier, but a talented one. He played the vampire character on the stage in Paris in the Grand Guignol. In those days, he was known as Eric Carin. Strangely, before the invasion, he joined the French underground and pretended to be sympathetic to their cause. So I guess he's a really good actor. Sorry to be referential, but the premise of the actor as military asset made me think of Team America World Police. <laughs> that puppet movie, right. which also uses this character category uh, to hilarious effect uh -huh. and the fact that this guy is a nazi of course reminds me of what we do in the shadows the original film oh, when right, deacon yeah. is recounting his past and he says if you were a nazi after the war mm. and if you were a vampire if you were a nazi vampire no way <laughs> it's so funny anyway done being that guy who references you know quoting movies right back yes. to the story of this actor who, as you said, performed on the stage of the Grand Guignol. We don't have to get into it here, but that was a theater that specialized in gruesome special effects. Oh, Really right. aroused its patrons yes. with its realistic depiction of gore on stage. Right. And it was only about a 300-seat theater, really popular between the two world wars in, in that era. I'll link out to some info, but it's worth reading about. The show posters are incredible. Yeah, Gore the performed Guignol. there quite a few times. <laughs> I'm sure they did. Gore's been around forever. They have. So I think it's not that he was in the... You have it a little backwards. I think he joined the German underground pre-war in France. It says long before the Germans took Paris, he joined their underground, working long and well. 
as an actor, he'd been invaluable. So he was living in Paris and doing his Grand Guignol thing. Oh, I see. And then reporting to the Germans because, like I said, that was a popular theater. Right. So the there is not the French. The there is the German. Right. Okay. I mean, I understand why you would think that because the underground we associate that with the hmm. French underground during the occupation. Yes. This is way before but then. So before he then. he would in the Grand Guignol, he would have had lots of access because there were luminaries, politicians, royalty came to this mm. theater. It was that popular. It was sort of like the Hamilton of its time, except with <laughs> eviscerations instead of hip hop. <laughs> that's actually ideal place to be an actor spy. Right. So why is he now running around the countryside pretending to be a vampire? It is part of a plan of his own creation to get some intel on the advancing American forces. He told the superiors that Chateau Barsac had been abandoned for years because the locals think it's haunted by Count Barsac, a vampire. <gasps> Eric's plan was to set up a radio transmitter with three operators inside the chateau while he would pretend to be the Count and scare away prying eyes. This sounds like a setup for an episode of Scooby-Doo, <laughs> just with more Nazis. That was my immediate thought. He's going to pull a Scooby-Doo. Mm. And, and I'm not saying Robert Block didn't think about this because he doesn't explain explicitly say how the radio operators are dressed, but right. they really should be dressed as the three brides <laughs> in case somebody comes across them accidentally. <laughs> so I'm just going to imagine that's happening. Yeah, good idea. He argues that these people are stupid and superstitious <laughs> and French. The plan is foolproof. None of the peasants from the village dared adventure near it, even in daylight, because of the legend. It is said, you see, that the last Count Barsac was a vampire. And so it was arranged. He, Count Barsack, in charge of the entire operation as guardian angel, rather as guardian demon. Ooh. ooh. <laughs> oh, Robert Block. <laughs> the Barsack crypt is just down the hill from the chateau, and part of Eric's plan is to bust into that crypt, hide the Count's real body, and leave the crypt open so that people will see that it's open and the body's missing. The villagers will then see that the Count is back and haunting the countryside. Eric's superiors weren't so sure about this plan, but he convinced them. After they saw him in the makeup, wearing the black cloak, there were no more questions. The role was his. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so mad that scene is only referenced. Why wasn't it in the story? You know, I want to see the Nazis waiting for the reveal. When will he be ready with this presentation? Blah, blah, blah! <laughs> Got in him and my Nazi heart is terrified. <laughs> so he aced the, the audition. Yeah. Ausgezeichnet. The role was his and he played it well. His plan had been working a treat, but the Americans <laughs> were advancing. So they're going to have to make their own retreat. Mm. Time to make one's bow and exit, he says. The Germans are also using the crypt to store stolen art and plan on using a getaway truck that they have hidden at the chateau. When the time is right, the radio operators and Eric will don stolen American uniforms, load up the truck with stolen art, and then just drive right through enemy lines. They would drive through the lines across the river and rejoin the German forces at a pre-designated spot. Nothing had been left to chance. He's like, now remember, when you don your American uniforms, take off your bride wigs. <laughs> Don't want a repeat of my last mission. <laughs> what? What happened last time? Eric is getting everything ready for his final performance, and he thinks about Shakespeare and all of his witches and ghosts and all that stupid supernatural stuff <laughs> that idiots believe in. Fools! <laughs> he has such a weird idea about his own profession and, like, storytelling and stuff. He just has such contempt for the audience. I oh. love that. Shakespeare, who had written of ghosts and witches of bloody apparitions, because Shakespeare knew that his audience is the stupid masses. <laughs> <laughs> believed in such things, just as they still believe today. 
A great actor could always make them believe. <laughs> now, I know there are some outliers mm -hmm. who maybe believe that the actor and the character are the same person. But I'm pretty sure that when theater goers, you know, see Banquo's ghost, they know it's not really a ghost up there. <laughs> They're like, that's Pat Tobin. He does my taxes. He's got a bunch of powder dumped on him. You know, he's actually pretty good. <laughs> who would have guessed? That's usually, I think, what happens yeah. among the stupid masses. I think that's, that's much more likely. Now it is time for the final performance. Count Barsack is on the prowl as the radio operators load up the art into the truck down by the crypt. Eric thinks back over the success of his mission. It started about a week ago. Count Barsack first scared the crap out of Raymond, the town mayor. After the Count jumped out and <laughs> I can only assume does a cloak spread and a hiss, you know, oh like that. <laughs> the mayor screamed like a woman and ran off into the night. Scream like a woman is Block's phrase. Yes, I... But I also almost screamed like a woman when you just made that hiss sound. That was like... <laughs> It's intense. If you added a spread cloak to that. Oh, my God. I'd, I'd leave Wisconsin. <laughs> wow. I can only imagine this mayor. I was so glad that a mayor showed up. I can only imagine he then goes to the sheriff and says, we're going to have a midnight blood drive festival on Saturday, <laughs> and I can't have any goddamn vampires running around here scaring people. Do not report on what happened to me. Oh, boy. This incident gets the mayor talking to anyone who will listen, and the rumors circulate all part of Eric's evil plan. The mayor and the miller then get a posse together to look into the crypt, and, of course, they find an empty coffin. Vampire sighting confirmed! <gasps> the next sighting is by Suzanne, Raymond's daughter. She's down by the river at night, canoodling with this guy, Antoine. When the Count makes his appearance, again, I can only assume he's going, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> of course. Despite Antoine being too injured to fight the war, he runs away, leaving Suzanne <laughs> behind, which is unfortunate because that means that Count Barsack is going to have to kill her. The Germans <sighs> bury her deep in the woods so no one will know what happened to her, uh, which is terrible. Yeah. Well, first of all, I guess I just kind of glanced over that it's Antoine's fault that this happened to her to an extent. He just ran away. Mm-hmm. He was lying to stay out of the war and he ran away. Ah, oh, that bastard Antoine. This is classic block here, though. He's a bit of a Grand Guignol guy himself. A lot of his stories feel like they're operating in this heightened reality of like sketch comedy almost. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then he'll fly out with something really terrible and real. Yeah. This is an absurd Scooby-Doo-esque idea, but things like this did happen in the war. Uh, fakeries and flimflams of all sorts. Sure. You know, people faking advances and what the military was doing and there are real stories about actors and writers being involved in efforts mm -hmm. on, on both sides. So it's not totally crazy. And then there's this reality of, yeah, these are Nazis. They'll kill. I mean, this is wartime. Mm -hmm. And uh, some innocent people are getting swept up and, and being killed. Yeah. So that reality just comes in. I feel like he's the kind of like an old guy at a family party, especially with that like guardian demon line. He's kind of <laughs> nudging you, saying some funny stuff. And then he flies out with. You know, I strangled two people in 1936. You're like, what? That's Robert Block. Suzanne's disappearance cinches it for the mayor. Now he's just a broken man who mumbles about the living dead. Eric can't help but smile to himself over his amazing performance. What a jerk. Ironically, he doesn't actually like killing or death. He's really squeamish about all this stuff. Again, a testament to his acting ability. Whatever, Eric. He likes it. He's trying to convince himself he doesn't. You mentioned The Living Dead, which is the name of the story. Yes. Uh, this is an example of an oxymoron, which is a literary term meaning an apparent contradiction in terms. Yeah. How can something be living but also be dead? 
doesn't make any sense, yet in a way it does. For this story, it ends up meaning a living person playing dead, mm -hmm. pretending to be dead. And I think Block would have liked this concept because it stresses that pretending to be something often attracts the consequences of that, mm -hmm. of being that thing, yeah. whether you like it or not. You can only fake it for so long until you make it. This story has also been published with the title Underground, which oh. is a clever war reference. I'm curious which one you like better. Living Dead. Yeah. I think that makes a little bit more sense because he is actually alive and he's pretending to be dead. Underground, almost none of the story takes place underground. It's a little more of an offhand reference, yeah. even though it's got vampire connotations. It's, yeah, yeah, I think no, you're right. And Living Dead fits better. For me. Back to the night of the escape, Eric thinks that the other should be ready, so he makes his way down to the crypt. There he sees the army truck, but none of his men. They should be loading in the loot, so where are they? As he looks in the truck, bam, ambush! It's about a dozen townspeople of the village, including the mayor, and they're armed with pitchforks and torches. Aha! Uh -huh. You faked it. Guess what? You maked it. <laughs> what? Made it. Eric can't believe that they would do something like this. They should be overcome with fear. The power of their superstition should not allow them to do this type of thing. But just then, an American corporal steps out. So Eric puts it together. The Americans stumbled across the radio operators loading the truck, shot them down, and some of the villagers. <laughs> I thought that was weird that he said they shot them because I think he would have heard gunshots. Oh, he was busy warming up. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Whether the weather be fair, whether the weather be hot, or whether the weather, whatever the weather, whether we like it bang, or not. Bang, was that bang. a gunshot? Well, I couldn't hear anything. <laughs> I'm going to do a mirroring exercise. Brides? Brides? Where are the brides? These Americans are trying to question him in English. Eric pretends not to speak English, so they give up and t just take him into custody. This is really funny because he's in a full vampire outfit. <laughs> which they kind of don't really talk about much. Like he's got makeup on and he's got a cloak and he's doing the whole thing. Can you imagine being a veteran and this is the story you take home? <laughs> it's ridiculous. You know, your grandkids are like, it's the seven, it's the 1970s. Your grandkids are like, do you have a Nazi Luger? No, but I saw Count Dracula. <laughs> you don't believe me? Get Paul Fricker and Mike Mason in here. <laughs> They'll confirm it. The corporal tells the mayor that they're going to take the truck back and send somebody to pick up the Count in an hour. <laughs> the mayor nods in agreement and the Americans drive off. Uh-oh. Eric knows that there are too many of them here to escape, and they're angry. Yeah. Uh, so they decide that they're going to put him in the crypt to hold him until the Americans come back. As they guide him in, they keep their distance, and no one will look directly at him. Ah, Eric thinks, they're still afraid of me. This might be my chance. Yes, with the Americans gone, he can play the vampire. They shrank back as he entered the doorway. He turned and on impulse furled his cape. <laughs> It was an instinctive final gesture in keeping with his role, and it provoked the appropriate response. They moaned, and old Raymond crossed himself. It was better in a way than any applause. <laughs> Is it better? Because <laughs> after the applause, you know, at shows I've done, you can go get some mozzarella sticks with your friends who came to the show. Uh-huh. I don't think that this is going to go that way. Yeah. Well, to him, it's positive, and it helps Eric yeah. relax. <laughs> he's going to be fine. Soon he's going to get taken by the Americans, probably interrogated, might spend a few months in prison. No biggie. He can handle that. Yeah. But the tomb is warm, and he really wants to take this stupid cape off so that he can cool down. Here he does a Dracula danger field. He shuddered involuntarily, loosening his cape at the throat. It's pretty awesome. It would be good to remove it. Good to be out of here. Good to shed the role of vampire forever. He played it well, but now he was anxious to be gone. There was a mumbling audible from outside, mingled with another less identifiable sound, a scraping sound. The Count moved 
to the closed door of the crypt and listened intently. But now there was only silence. What were the fools doing out there? He wished the Americans would hurry back. It was too hot in here. And why all the sudden silence? Perhaps they'd gone. Yes, that was it. The Americans had told them to wait and guard him, but they were afraid. They really believed he was a vampire. Old Raymond had convinced them of that, so they'd run off. They'd run off and he was free. He, he could escape now. So the Count opened the door. And he saw them then. Saw them standing and waiting. Old Raymond staring sternly for a moment before he moved forward. He was holding something in his hand. The Count recognised it, remembering the scraping sound that he had heard. It was a long wooden stake with a sharp point. Then he opened his mouth to scream, telling them it was only a trick. He was no vampire. They were a pack of superstitious fools. But all the while they bore him back into the crypt lifting him up and thrusting him into the open coffin, holding him there as the grim-faced Raymond raised the pointed stake above his heart. It was only when the stake came down that he realized there's such a thing as playing a role too well. <laughs> That's the end of the story. Get it, Nazi. Yeah, you say that. Uh -huh. The revenge tale. Somebody does something so bad that you're glad to see their comeuppance. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the worse it is, mm. the less you care about what happens to that person, the more you wish them pain. Yes. It's not always a rewarding experience to watch that because you see terrible things get done to the protagonist for the first half. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the second half, the protagonist gets their revenge, and I guess it indulges some sort of cruelty that, you know, is, is baked into being human. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know, it can just kind of make me feel bad at the end of the experience. Yes. So when is it fun? And I think this might be an example of when it's fun. <laughs> yeah, it's because the heinousness is quite minute. It seems that he killed one woman, which is still enough. Yeah. But a lot of it is also just his ego. You really want this guy to be knocked down a few pegs. So he's a bad dude. Yeah. And he's also really full of himself, which is kind of even worse. <laughs> and he's a Nazi. And he's a and Nazi. And Nazi is shorthand. That's like being an evil robot. You, you yes. just, if you're a Nazi, it doesn't matter. Because no. that's the, the, they did the worst thing. And so it's shorthand for it's okay if these guys get punched out, murdered. Right. Burnt, you know, their mm -hmm. flesh melted. Yeah, it's all yeah. good. That's what they get. Nazis are so bad, you'll let your kid watch a movie where their faces melt off. I mean, that's fine. <laughs> My dad did. Yeah. <laughs> Is this a strange story? Yeah, I was thinking about that. Going back to our statement about estrangement, I would mm -hmm. say that this does that. It does take me to a, a strange place, though it's based in kind of a reality of during the war when these things happened. It's a very bizarre situation that probably never really did happen. I don't think there was ever really some German no. guy pretending to be a vampire. Maybe. I don't know. I haven't watched the film Blood Vessel yet, which may or may not have that in it. Oh, really? It looks like aliens set in World War II on a ship, a Nazi ship at sea, and mm -hmm. there's vampires on the ship, or the Nazis were vampires. I can't tell exactly what's going oh, on. Oh, vampires versus aliens or something? No, 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 no. The structure of it feels like aliens, like a bunch of Americans oh, okay. come on to this, you, vi you. this ship 
this big German boat, and then when they mm-hmm. go inside, they find out that you know there's a vampire in there, and the vampire is killing people off, or the Nazis are vampires. Yeah. I'm not sure. It's unclear in the trailer. Well, monsters and vampires as part of World War II is almost like its own genre. Yeah. There's so many projects that fit into that. And yeah. vampire, it frequently is vampires, but there's also werewolves. All kinds of werewolves and weird science and things happening. Yeah. Because I do feel that even though it is somewhat, you know, like, certainly on a geological scale, recent history. Mm-hmm. I mean, my dad fought in World War II, so it's pretty recent, yeah. even though he was an old guy. Yet we've mythologized it quite a bit via media. Mm-hmm. So that it's almost like there's the World War II that actually happened, and then there's the World War II of, like, video games. Mm-hmm. And then there's all sorts of movies and stories that... And this feels like it's a part of that elevated World War II fantasy land. Right, right. Which is a little bit of estrangement, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So that Because sure. I do think that in that last line, Block says, you know, he realized there's such a thing as playing a role too well. So he used this estrangement, put, puts you in the Nazi vampire world, mm-hmm. goes through this sort of ridiculous scenario, but at its heart, this is something that's very true about the human condition, that if you um, say, pretend that you're a tough guy, you might end up in a fight that uh, right. that'll hurt for real. Or, you know, you want to be rebellious and you pretend you're a Nazi, someone might just come up and punch you in the face. Like, you you know, you, <laughs> there there is a reality to accidentally making it because you were faking it. And it's something that people need to worry about. For sure. And you you talked about mythologizing of World War II, and I think that Mm -hmm. is something. I remember reading an article about that where a lot of people, especially Americans, consider that the last just war, where Korea and Vietnam and all of these other wars were proxy wars and we weren't attacked. The enemy weren't necessarily doing these obvious atrocities. You know, they were able to really vilify the Germans and make it clear they were evil, we were good. There wasn't a lot of ambiguity to that war for most people. In reality, there was, obviously. America did terrible things in World War II, but the mythologizing of it is what people like to remember and what a lot of these movies are about in these books and these stories. There's sort of a primal war-like thing going on with all of us. It's there, you know. Mm. It's in in sports and it's in our appreciation of wars, turning them into toys and video games and things that we can replay. And that one has, it seems fairly clean cut, but you're right. I mean, all war is insanely terrible. Everybody that ever got killed, their life cut short, had a family and people that weren't affiliated with these causes that started the damn thing. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to lose each other. And it was horrific for everybody involved on all sides. And it always is, mm-hmm. you know, war, you know war, war is an awful thing. So this is like a distancing that we do in order to kind of satisfy something primal or to comprehend the wars that are being fought in the current era, mm-hmm. which you see happen all the time where, say, Troilus and Cressida by Shakespeare will become a popular play when war is going on because right. it's about the inhumanity and the, it's about the mythologizing of the Trojan War. Mm-hmm. And so it's uh, we can estrange ourselves from what's currently happening, whether it's the Iraq War, Vietnam or what have you, and watch that and be able to, with that distance, process some feelings that we're having. Mm-hmm. It's the function of art. You know, we have more immediate things like horror and comedy. It's interesting that Robert Block you know, those things are just supposed to make you jump or supposed to elicit a giggle. And Robert Block, very cleverly here, uses horror comedy mm-hmm. to make you think about a, a valuable lesson, yeah. the way a fable might at the end. I, so. I agree wholeheartedly. So, man, the story's tight, is what I'm saying. <laughs> it's dope. <laughs> we got a lot of tight and dope stories coming up this month. Oh, yeah. Sort of a gra- uh, it's a grab bag, like I said. What do we got? We've got the Rocking Horse winner by D.H. Lawrence next. Mm-hmm. That's a little heavier. Than this one. Okay. So, so I thought we'd vary it up. But an awesome story. I really like it. And in uh, in the vein of stories that I guess would be considered great literature, we'll after that be doing The Bet 
by Anton Chekhov, which is a really great short story. And um, one again, I'll question, is this a strange story or is it Mm -hmm. just a description of something that happened? And then finally, we're going to do Kurt Vonnegut double feature at the end of the month. Very famous story of his Harrison Bergeron, Mm -hmm. which is also very short. And then another one of his that people like a lot called To Be or Not To Be Expressed Numerically. Those are both kind of science fiction stories. There's going to be a lot to talk about. All of those. What are we doing in December? We know that, right? December, we're going to go back to the tales of yesteryear and Mm. explore some fairy tales with the Brothers Grimm. Yes. So we're going to start it off with Snow White and just really go into that story and talk about the Brothers Grimm version of it, because it is an older story from before. So we'll talk about that before. But the text that we're going to be reading will be the Grimm's fairy tales from the late 1800s, I believe. I haven't done my research on it yet. And then maybe <laughs> we'll throw in a ghost story or two come Christmas. Yeah, yeah. We're thinking about maybe doing a ghost story for our extra credit. So there's a lot of stuff to hang in there with us and listen to. We hope you will through the holidays, through the rest of the year. I'm stoked by our stakers who made this show possible. They make all the free shows possible. And I'm going to start by thanking one of our stakers, Ben A. I want to thank Richard Wolf. I'd also like to thank Eric S. Valone, MD. The king of all snakes. Thank you. Crypto cartographer, thank you so much. Alistair Brooks, thank you. The twins, thank you so much. Boss Coffee, thank you. (laughs) And finally, Angelina Brown, thank you. Thank you so much, Stakers. We're going to be back next week with the Rocking Horse winner. Until then, I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories at strangestudies.com and Patreon. Strange Studies of Strange Stories. (laughs) 